Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. In the summer of 19 BC, the poet Publius Virgilius Maro, better known as Virgil, was travelling in Greece when he caught a fever. He took ship back to Italy, but died when he reached the port of Brindisi. He was just 50 years old. But that was not the end of Publius Virgilius Maro. More than a thousand years later, on the night before Good Friday 1300, another Italian poet found himself lost in a dark wood. And who should appear to guide him through the underworld but the ghost of Virgil? So begins Dante Alighieri's The Divine Comedy, one of the absolute foundational texts of European and world literature. And Tom Holland, that's a really good example, isn't it, of the imprint that the classical world, Greece and Rome, has left on our imagination. Do you think we're all we're all kind of the children of Greece and Rome, really? Well, you know I have views on that. Uh, of, I do. Of course. Um, we, we look back to Greece and Rome um, as a kind of a seedbed of, of ourselves. Um, there are other influences on us as well that perhaps we might come on to. They're the ones we talk about, aren't they? They're the ones we talk about most. The history of how people have understood Greece and Rome since the kind of the end of the classical age is itself a massive theme of history. So, I mean, you cited Dante. I mean, that's a kind of classic example. Dante's the great classic of Italian literature and Virgil has this absolutely starring role in it. And I, I remember something that um, probably the most famous classicist in the world, uh, Mary Beard, said once, ages ago. I think it was, it was long before she'd kind of become a global superstar. And she gave a lecture and she talked about Virgil and she said that it was her opinion that pretty much since the moment he, Virgil had laid down his pen to die, there wasn't a day when someone hadn't read the Aeneid. It's amazing. Um, it, it, it is. And so if we're going to talk about this, this kind of this legacy, the way that the legacy of Greece and Rome has kind of evolved and, and, and spread over the course of the centuries and the millennia, who better to yeah. have on the show than the Imperatrix, the Basilea herself, Mary Beard. So Mary, <laughs> thank you so much for thank agreeing to come on and uh, talk to us about this subject, which is a subject that is actually very much on, on you, has been on your mind recently, hasn't it? Mm. Because you've just published um, a fantastic new book, The Twelve Caesars, which is about, uh, it's not actually about the Twelve Caesars themselves, it's, but about how they've been understood. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, the book is is saying, look, you know, every time we go to a stately home, you know, what do we see? We see a lineup of 12 Caesars, probably in rather vulgar porphyry or something, um, with a bit of gilding. Um, and now even people like me tend to walk past, you know, and think, yeah, 12 Caesars, on we go. And what I've done in the book, and it's it fits very much with, you know, the whole idea of why the ancient world still matters to us. You know, I started to ask why, what are these, what are these tyrants doing on our shelves? You know, why, why are we still so interested in Caesars? I mean, you're right to say, you know, I don't think Nero quite comes up to Virgil. Um, but in terms of the visual world in which we live, we're still surrounded by these guys. We, we still use it. Even people who say, um, oh, I know nothing about the ancient world, which people often say, and they're always wrong, 
because yeah, they always they're always do. Wrong. Yes. They're always wrong when they say that. But, you know, it's often the starting convo with me. You know, oh, I know nothing about the ancient world. People still pick up a newspaper. There's a cartoon of some politician who doesn't really have his mind on the job. You know, he's dressed up with a toga and a laurel wreath um, and he's strumming a lyre and there's blazing fire in the background. And we all know it's Nero fiddling while Rome burned. We do, um, we do. And so, Mary, the critics have been raving about this book. Um, I'm going to quote, <laughs> quote one particularly distinguished critic uh, who has written, as this book triumphantly demonstrates, there is no one on the face of the planet better qualified than Mary Beard to guide us through the great hall of mirrors, labyrinthine and treacherous as it is, that separates us from the 12 Caesars. Do you know who that distinguished critic was, Dominic? Uh, was it you? You're was, quoting yourself. Yeah. I am. I'm quoting That's myself. Same. Mary, this is how these podcasts... <laughs> I know you, this is your first time on this podcast. This is how it proceeds. Tom compliments himself <laughs> a great length <laughs> I'm not, and then says I'm goodbye to the Mary. guest. I'm complimenting Mary. But the reason I cite that is that I, I actually rather... Yeah, I am going to compliment myself here because I do like that idea of a great hall of mirrors, labyrinthine and treacherous. Because Mary, that... I mean... Go on, tell me. I mean, that's okay. That's a good description. Oh, it is. Yeah, you're you're a great wordsmith, Tom Holland. A great wordsmith. (laughs) Because because the the thing is is that there is no one way to respond to it, and so obviously different ages have understood this in different ways. So um, so so the Roman Empire collapses in the West, and that's an important thing because obviously it continues in the East. But in the West, the legacy of classical literature. And the memory of Rome endures, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think we now tend to think that, let's say, the rediscovery of classical antiquity... Um, you know, was part and parcel not only of an intellectual enterprise in the early Renaissance, but it was also part and parcel of very much elite culture, dynastic power. Um, We think of... um, um, you know the the big guys, the warlords of the late Middle Ages. You know, seeing themselves as Roman emperors, um, and I think you know all that's true. But what I think is truer, both about images of emperors, but also about images of classical world in general, is that, and I suppose this is what you're talking about when you mention Hall of Mirrors. These these figures have always been much more kind of fragile, ambivalent, um, uh, difficult to pin down, curious. Uh, And one of the things that I'm wanting to do in the book, you know, is actually to say, look, everybody, what did people in, let's say, 15th, 16th century know, think they knew, they might have been wrong, what did they think they knew about the 12 Caesars, right? The first 12 Roman emperors, the most famous ones, from Julius Caesar um, to Domitian, 12 rulers later. Well, they they knew that all but one of them um, was rumoured to have had a not natural end. Um, They read their Suetonius and other bits of classical literature, and they knew that they were corrupt autocrats, etc., etc. And yet they use them, they use the image of these rulers, which they pick up from ancient sculpture, but particularly ancient coins. Um, and they decorate, they de- decorate their, their private and public space with them. Now, we've sort of taken that for granted. You know, well, you know image of power, 12 Caesars. But actually, these figures are 
are much more complicated than that. And one of the questions I wanted to ask, and it's become more relevant uh, as my work on the book uh, has gone on, is why did people want to see images of people they knew to be monsters in their in their homes, in their public spaces. And that leads you on to think, I think, a bit harder about, so what are these images for? Why, you know, what, what are portraits of people from the past? What are, you know, what are they doing? What are they for? How do they fit into, to, you know, whether it's the 19th century, the 15th century or the 21st? Mary, let um, me ask you a slightly, a slightly different but, but kind of broader question. At what point do you think those people are aware of Greece and Rome as belonging to a different age, a vanished age, and not part of a continuum, kind of it's, not part of their own world, if you know what I mean. I think it's very hard to know. Um, I mean, the standard answer would be, I, I suppose, you know, Renaissance humanism, you know, burgeoning in the 15th century um, and a little before and later, um, it, it, in a sense historicized the ancient world it showed it showed to the intellectuals of the west that the ancient world was a subject of study it wasn't us and you know up to a point that's true you know most of these do do you think it's important that i mean there's a difference here between pagan and christian emperors isn't there well i think that complicates things hugely because you know i'm rather carefully in what i've just said to dominate um sticking uh, you know taking the intellectual line um, and suggesting, no, hinting, which would be completely wrong, actually, hinting that the engagement with these figures was, you know, was from people like me, only men in the Renaissance, you know, um, that there was a kind of humanistic academic inquiry, which, which in a way put a barrier. It, it both opened up the ancient world, but it made it, made it seem different. And I think you'd also have to say there's a parallel strand going on, which I think a lot of us now, we haven't forgotten, but, but isn't, doesn't come flooding in when you think about Roman emperors, which is that the history of Christianity is actually oh, embedded. Yes. The history of Christianity yes. is embedded in the Roman Empire. You know, and you know, some of the most popular paintings that you get um, from the 16th century onwards, but you can find some examples earlier. Um, it's a famous scene that we've now almost uniformly forgotten um, of the Emperor Augustus wondering if he was going to become a god and wondering if there was going to be anyone more powerful than him in the world. And he consults a pagan prophetess, a Sibyl. And what does she do? She points up in the sky and it's the very day that Jesus is being born. And Augustus has a vision of Mary and Jesus in a cloud. They do it rather, you know, you know sort of not, they're not terribly good, most of these painters, at, at imagining that scene. Um, but what we're being told is that those two histories come together. Well, and also in Virgil, right? Because Vir- well, but Virgil, I mean, one of the reasons why Virgil is Dante's guide is that it is believed that, that his poems, in a way, had foretold the yeah. coming of Christ and therefore yes. he comes he, to become a kind of yes, Christian necromancer. Yeah. Yes. And, and and so you get Augustus being the ruling emperor when Jesus was born. Uh, you get um, Nero as the great persecutor. I mean, you go to the great um, uh, ceremonial doors on St. Peter's, which one of the few bits of, of new St. Peter's that were taken over from the venerable old St. Peter's. And who have you got 
you know, who do you see first when you go into St. Peter's that way? You see Nero. Uh, That's amazing. And Nero is sitting there and he is condemning Peter and Paul to death. And so Roman emperors are absolutely built in to the, to the idea of the history of the church from its very beginning to the time when um, uh, the Roman Empire itself, at least uh, from the point of view of the, the dynastic leaders, when Constantine would be the classic example, um, becomes himself a Christian, when the Roman Empire becomes Christian. So the whole of Christianity, I, I'm now going to say something completely outrageous and slightly wrong, but it's a good exaggeration. The whole of the early history of Christianity is incomprehensible without understanding its embeddedness in the Roman Empire. That doesn't sound controversial. That just sounds quite reasonable, I think. I think, I think that's well, yes. that's I going think to be, reasonable. you know, there's some bits of the, the Syriac world which might contest some of this. Well, I don't but, know how many Syriac listeners you have on this <laughs> that was good. So I will probably get away with it, but you, but also, you, you, sense, you, you sense that I'm being very careful and covering but, my back. I mean, Mary, on, on that theme of... of um, Again, looking at looking at Virgil, looking at Dante, looking at the way the Roman emperors are understood. I mean, so Dante is identifying with the tradition of the Caesars. He's he's, yeah. he's kind of he's yes. enthusiast for the empire yeah. against yes. the papacy, yeah. and and so when he, when they go down, you know, into the the, the lowest pit of hell, yeah. and they see Satan, yeah. he's gnawing on Judas, <laughs> yes. but he's also gnawing on Brutus and Cassius, who are. Yes. Absolutely, you know. I mean, they're up there with the worst people who yeah. ever lived for murdering That's right. Julius Caesar. Murdering Julius Caesar, um, and you know, so, so it is. I mean, I think what's interesting, uh, and it's what I hope I bring out in the book, is that these equivalences and this embeddedness is always more complicated. You know, it's always more complicated than it looks. And you know, it, you know, one way of telling the history of the early church is, of course, to see um, pagan emperors as great persecutors. But there's always another side, and there's always another kind of engagement. I mean, I think one of the my favourite objects. So it's kind of it's a bit over the top. Is a Transylvanian um, religious chalice um, from a cathedral in Transylvania. 16th century, 17th century, fuzzy date. Um, and it's a communion chalice. And it, what is set in this communion chalice, out of which the faithful are going to um, drink the blood of Christ and take the bread, um, what do you see? They've set in it a whole ray, array of Roman coins, and uh, including Nero. <laughs> so, you know, the kind of the the image that you have to conjure up for yourself is somebody drinking the communion wine, sipping the communion wine. And as they do that, who are they brought face to face with? They're face to face with Nero. And so these these figures are kind of operating as a world within which the history of Christianity is being is being understood. And sometimes it is to bring those worlds together, which you have in with with your Virgil and Dante example, and with a lot of these. Uh, you know, Augustus is always cropping up as um, in the context in art of the birth of Jesus. So you've got you're saying that these histories go together, and you're also saying these histories are forever um, in opposition to one another. But it's fair uh, to say, is it, Mary, that throughout 
the history subsequent to the fall of the Western Roman Empire, that Rome in particular has been seen, I mean, I don't know so much with Greece, but Rome has been seen as synonymous with kind of power and, and a kind of prestige, right? I mean, that's a constant, yeah. isn't it, in uh, it's, post-Roman history? Uh, that's one of the constants. Um, uh, and certainly we can really forget Greece here. I mean, you know, the rediscovery of Greece was hugely influential, particularly in the 19th century. Uh, you know, and you can trace the history of, say, Alexander the Great through some of this period. But essentially, when we're thinking about imagining um, uh, the ancient world and thinking about how the ancient world um, impacts on us, then it's Rome. And it is it is about power. It's about larger than lifeness, but it's also about corruption. It's about murder. It's about dynasties going wrong. Uh, it's about persecution. Um, it's a very male world okay. too. But um, so, so that, sh- that that I mean that sense that actually what we're talking about in the Middle Ages, if we're looking at the the, the legacy of the classical world, is really Rome. I mean, yeah. and yes. and the the extent to which Greece appears in so yeah. the, the stories of the Trojan Greece. War, yeah. the Greek yeah. myths. I mean, it's being yeah. mediated through it, Rome. It's, it's being mediated through Rome, and the, the other person that you'd add into the to the equation, along with Virgil and Dante, is you'll say, look, you know, where where do people know what we call the Greek myths from um, at this period? You know, anything from the from you know, the Middle Ages to the, you know, the Baroque period, I suppose. Where do they know those? Well, mostly they know them through Ovid. Um, they are Roman versions of the Greek myth, and and they are always um, they're they're always kind of looking. I think one eye, you know, over the shoulder uh, at what Dominic's talking about. Really, Roman power as well as the Roman imagination, um, and they're making they're making kind of different arguments and debates and discussions around it. I, mean, I think that if um, the 12 Caesars, let's say, or any of these images of Roman power had been you know, utterly simply rubber stamps of modern political power looking back to antiquity, um, they wouldn't have had half so much edge. They wouldn't have had half so much longevity. You know, we'd have got bored. We'd have got really, really bored of them by now. But it's because they it's because they always raise questions and they are they're always harder to pin down than you think that they've got such continuing momentum. Uh, Mary, I've got two questions. So one is a very boring, small housekeeping question. Is the reason that we think of Hercules rather than Heracles and Shakespeare refers to Jove or rather than Zeus? Is that just because we're getting it all filtered through the Romans? That they is. don't have access to the Greek myths unmediated yeah. by the Romans? Yeah. Okay. yeah. It's mostly that. And I think that as soon as you get, and it's, you know, it would start a bit earlier than the late 19th century, but as soon as you get um, a load of, of self-conscious Hellenists um, looking back and saying, hey, guys, you need to, you know, there's somewhere else to go. Yeah. Then, of course, we get the naming wars. And you can tell that in, you know, in, you, know you, can, you can tell that someone who calls Heracles Heracles is telling you, think yeah. Greece. Tom someone, Holland. Tom Holland is Tom, that person. Yeah. Um, OK, so we've got a very good question, much better than my last question, from one of our listeners, SO3 Clausewitz. And Clausewitz <laughs> says... And I think this is a fascinating question. Was the Renaissance destined to be Greco-Roman? So he says, basically, is there a counterfactual what if where it's Egyptian or Persian or or whatever, sort of more Eastern? Or was it always bound to be Greco-Roman, I suppose, because of the imprint of the Roman Empire on Western Europe? Uh, I 
that you could say it was all, it was almost bound to be um because you know we're sitting in a in a continent and a landmass where um we dig in the soil and what do we find well if you're in italy we might find busts of Roman emperors. You know, you can be in Durham um, and we're finding coins with Roman emperors. Um, you know, Shakespeare refers to, the, you know, the imprints of Roman, of Roman figures on coins. Um, that what lies beneath our feet is, is Roman, really. I mean, it's not actually Greco-Roman, it's Roman. What I think is, why that question I think is interesting is, of course, it it's it's slightly challenging the kind of assumption that comes from that that you know the the only thing worth studying in antiquity the only people who've got any brains at all um were the romans and the greeks now in fact we know that it's a much more complicated intellectual world than that um which you know certainly for example and there'd be many others you know includes egypt and um uh, the, both the Greeks and the Romans knew that they had got a lot from Egypt. You know, how does Julius Caesar manage to reform the calendar so that it gives us the calendar that we have pretty much today? Well, he doesn't think of it himself. He gets some Egyptian boffins on board and they tell him how to reform the calendar. So you, you can't, in, kind of, in my world when I'm teaching, I'm wanting to encourage students to um, l look a little more critically at that kind of, you know, total domination of Romano-Greek antiquity, I'll call it, um, and to see where it comes from and to see its uh, relationships with, you know, with the other cultures of the ancient Mediterranean. Mary, I mean, with the specifically on Egypt, of course, I mean, people were fascinated by yeah. Egypt yes, in, in the Renaissance yes. and, and, and they yearned to yeah. kind of crack yes. what they thought they was did. the hidden wisdom of the Egyptians, <laughs> yeah, but they, they couldn't did. because they couldn't read the text. Read That's right. And yeah, so that, the key, I mean, yes. the key yeah. to, yes. and, and of course, the key to the rediscovery of, of Greece yes. is also yeah. the rediscovery of the Greek language and learning the Greek yeah. language. Yeah. And yeah. I guess that, you know, we're calling this episode classic so up till now we've really been looking at um you know the the, the reception of, of 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 greece and rome but classics is also particularly about the languages about greek and latin <laughs> and I, I i wonder if we should perhaps go for a break now but after the break if we could look at the way in which um the idea of classics being the study of Greek and Latin and how that's kind of influenced the, the role. That, I mean, it has a kind of sense that this is a very elite thing to study yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I know that yeah. you have strong views on that. So perhaps we could come to that after the break. Ave, we are looking at <laughs> classics, uh, the, the way in which uh, the civilizations of Greece and Rome have been uh, interpreted, reinterpreted um, over the course of the centuries. And we have with us none other than Mary Beard, um, who is professor of classics at Cambridge. And Mary, th this idea of classics, the, the joining together of Greek and Latin as a fit <laughs> subject of, of study at university. I mean, this is this has a very kind of lengthy tradition, doesn't it? I mean, in Europe, but but it has it yeah. kind of takes on a particular contours yeah. in England. Yeah, it takes on particular contours in in England, and it would be it would be naive 
to say um, that there's been no connection between class and classics, that the learning of Latin in particular, rather less Greek. Greek has always been a bit more kind of um, upmarket, recherche, recherche, you know. Um, bohemian, is it Greek? Slightly more bohemian, yes. And it's got all kinds of connections with you know, do you some things because, that we, because, we don't much like. Like, you know, uh, you know, Athenian democracy was not terribly um, the flavour of the month in the early 19th century, for example. And so you, you're... We're seeing it through Rome and we're seeing uh, an elitism here and also up to a point um, we're seeing the, the, the acquisition of Latin as a gatekeeper to elite culture here. OK, and, so we have a question from Andrew here. What is it about studying the classics that seems to appeal to the elite? <laughs> well, I would say... Um, uh, Almost nothing. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that one of the points about what the, the, let's say, the English elite studied in the 18th and early 19th century was that they studied Latin and Greek. They studied language. And, uh, and what did they spend most of their time doing? Well, they were translating Shakespeare into Latin. They were they were translating Milton into Latin, and part of the point of this, and I think one, one's, um, it, you can't really emphasise this too strongly. Um, they they weren't much. They were reading Virgil, but they weren't thinking about Virgil as a literary text. They were thinking about how they wrote like Virgil, and one of the the kind of bizarre things. And one of the things that made the learning of Latin so good as a gatekeeper to elite culture was it was also in many ways so pointless. You know, they, they <laughs> so were the pointlessness is the point. Pointlessness is the point. You were learning absolute fluency in a dead language. Now, they were not, they were a bit, but they were not much, certainly not at school and not a lot at university. They were not thinking about... Um, the literary merit of the Aeneid. They weren't thinking much about, um, let's say, Roman philosophy. They weren't reading Cicero in order to think about um, how how you organised a state. Um, they the the big real focus of their learning was translating English into Latin, <laughs> and. Uh, we now think of classics as a subject, and I'm happy to say it is very much now in the modern world, as a subject which is about the Greeks and Romans. You have a, uh, you access it through language, often, not always, um, but, it's, but it's about that kind of culture. Um, I, I think if we'd gone back to the late 18th century, we wouldn't recognise what these, these people were doing. Mary, what's about this argument that's a bit... Um... I know Tom's got a question about Thomas Hobbes, but I want to jump in before that. Oh, God. Um, I, I always so, pass on Thomas Hobbes' questions. So, so my question is, there's a slightly, what seems to me a slightly crude way of thinking that people learn, do classics because they want to be, because of empire, because they want yeah, to, yeah. purely yeah. because they want, they, they, they would be imperialists yeah. no. and they think. Yeah. Is that is that right or is that wrong? I, I think it's half right. As, as Most of these kind of um, stereotypes that we have about why and how uh, the classics were studied 
it, let's say, 19th century, 18th century, they're always half true. You know, and it is there is no doubt that, you know, some people who were avowed imperialists saw the Roman Empire as um, as their lodestar, really, that, that, that Britain had taken on the mantle of um, ancient Rome uh, and was, in a sense, replicating and doing better than the Romans. And but I think it's more complicated than that. I mean, partly the um, uh, the relationship between the Roman Empire and the British Empire was always a very fragile one. And I think you can see that if you go to the famous statue of Boudicca or Tom Boudicca. Yeah. Tom loves this. We've done a whole thing right. on this. Well, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, you, you go to that statue and you look at what's written underneath. Uh, you know, here we've got, you know, a big rebel against Rome um, standing up for uh, the native Brits against imperial oppression. And the the poem that is the Cooper poem that's written by her or underneath her, you know, says words to the effect of "Don't worry, Boudicca, your descendants will rule more of the world than the Romans did." It's basically the message. I love that. <laughs> I mean, so, so whose side yeah, are we on? And, and Mary also. I mean, it's it's not just in Britain, is it? Because in France, yeah. I mean, France, you know, they're yeah. using yeah. in Algeria. They they yeah. the French. Yeah. See yeah. themselves as kind of the heirs yeah. of Rome, yeah. bringing civilization right. and baths and things yes. to the, the desert wilds. But simultaneously, Excellent. they're bunging up a statue of Vercingetorix <laughs> to mark the defeat. <laughs> yes. and, and, and the Germans are doing the same and with Armenians, who's with that, defeated. That is that is absolutely right. So, even with that broad equivalence between Rome and modern empires, there's always that. So, you know, who's coming out on top? Who, who's really like whom? I think also we tend to forget that. Rome gave people a language for critiquing empire. Well, as, exactly. Okay, you know, so, I, 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 and that seems to me hugely important. You know, there were some of these, you know, some of these boys, <laughs> they were boys at Oxford, nipping off to, to quotes, and I put all this in inverted commas, quotes, rule India. Others were going up to work on the Manchester Guardian to say what an absolute pile of shite uh, imperialism was. And they'd all learned it from the classics. But Mary, <laughs> just before that, the reason I, I just wanted to mention Hobbes was that he famously, <laughs> after the execution of Charles I, said people should not be reading Greek and Latin history because it just encourages them to kill you know, they're rightful kings. You know, they mur- <laughs> yeah. they're tyrannicides and things. It's yeah. terrible behaviour. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. got to be stamped out. And yeah. and um, yeah. the, the the both the American revolutionaries and the yeah. French revolutionaries were absolutely steeped in the classical world. That's so, right. So yeah. it is also about. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, it kind of underpins I, the revolution, I, doesn't it? I have been banging on about this for more years than I like to think. You know that there isn't a inherent politics in the classical world. You can use, and you do use, uh, classical examples, classical tropes, um, classical cliches to justify revolution as much as to justify oppression. And, you know, the classics has got a, you know, it's got a pretty kind of poor record when it comes to underpinning European dictatorship. Um, uh, You know, Mussolini for a start, and, yeah, 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 that's right. But it's it's also got a, in my view, others might disagree. It's got a pretty fine record in asking people to critique imperial power, to critique corruption. I mean, I don't see really how you can read, 
even if you're not reading it for its history, how can you study the Roman historian Tacitus and not come away with a countercultural version about autocracy, one-man rule, and the corruption of empire? And indeed empire. Well, empire. even beyond that, though, I, was, I mean, Tom and I were talking about this um, before we started the podcast, and I, I said to him that the two best-known popular modern versions of the Roman Empire. So they're I, Claudius, and the film Gladiator. And in both, there's yeah. a there's a, div, a narrative device where one character wants to bring back the Republic. He um, says, yes. we're corrupt, yes. we're autocratic, yeah. we're yeah. repressive. Yeah. You know, yeah. we need... So so even in our yeah. sort of modern retellings of Rome, that stuff is woven we, in. We, we, we can't ever... You can't ever tell Rome. Or you tell a very, very um, uninteresting story of Rome if you didn't keep that that side, that other side on board. And I think, you know, look, for me, um, you know, when did I first really see that Latin could speak for me? It was when I read Tacitus and it was the biography, not his main histories of, of uh, the early Roman Empire, but his biography of his father-in-law, Agricola. And, um, you know, I was a sort of disaffected lefty teenager. Um, and I'd sort of fetched up learning Latin because they thought that's what brainy girls did. Um, and we were reading Tacitus's biography of Agricola. And then I came across the bit where Tacitus puts into the mouth, admittedly, of you know, a native Brit, though the native Brit never said it. Um, so he rallies the, the, the opposition to Rome by saying, what do the Romans do? They make a desert and call it peace. And that was when my eyes sort of opened because I thought there are people in the Roman world who were talking to me about about me. You know, they're not just sitting there um, yomping across Gaul, you know, on a on a kind of pledge of massacring the, the poor natives. Um, they're they're thinking about what empire is. And, you know, actually, if you t if you were to say, you know, has there ever been a better critique of empire than they make a desert and call it peace. You know, I, I think Tastas wins hands down, at yeah. least on um, succinctness and lucidity. Um, well, uh, kind of on that, a slight angle to that, that we've got a question from Murphman, aka Justin Murphy, <laughs> who asks, and I think this is a really interesting question, have classicists traditionally downplayed and do they still the cruelty and unfairness of the Roman world? And if so, why? I mean, that is a quite an interesting question. Does uh, the does the, classicists inevitably are kind of passionate about mm, the, the need mm, to study yeah, yeah. You know, the literature, the languages of these ancient peoples? Does kind of emphasising, you know, the wonder of, of Virgil or Homer or whatever, lead people to downplay the costs yeah. of uh, what Greece and Rome meant for? Uh, I mean, uh, I hope I haven't. You know, no, I, absolutely, um, you haven't. I, but I, I just wonder, the I tradition, is this, a, is this I, a problem with I the tradition? Think, I, I think there is a degree of a problem with tradition. Look, you know, there's, throughout my career, you know, I've been reading people uh, like Moses Finley or E.R. Dodds, um, you know, who are looking the classical world in the eye and always have done. And I think you can go back to the 19th century too and you can find writers doing the same. I think to some extent um, there can be a fudge, uh, as much in popular writing as in academic writing, um, from saying 
this culture is extremely interesting to saying this culture is admirable. And then tending to downplay um, things like the treatment of women, slavery, um, and uh, or sexual violence, if you like. I mean, and it's, it's certainly the case that when I was at school and a bit when I was at university, um, we would read Ovid's Metamorphoses. Now, my young students now see Ovid's Metamorphoses, interesting as it is, as a work of literature, which is basically a handbook of rape. It's one rape after the next. And in, in some ways that's true. We never talked about it like that. I mean, we had that wonderful word rapture. You know, <laughs> this was a rapture. It wasn't a rape. And that went hand in hand with... It's a way of seeing the gods, isn't it? It's a way of seeing the gods. You know, and of course we um, can, you know, what price do you want to pay? I mean, it's kind of the enunciation, the perhaps. You know, I mean, ask Semele, ask Semele, you know. Yeah. Um, what, uh, is there a downside to seeing the gods? Well, yes, is there... You know, what is Ovid saying about what the costs are of that? But I, I think you could find that in, you know, outside um, sexual violence. But, you know, uh, I think there, there was a, a tradition of seeing slavery as a bit in the model of, you know, country house service. Yes, upstairs, downstairs. Upstairs, downstairs. It's Downton yes. Abbey. That's right. Yes. Uh, um, and, you know, the truth is that some of it probably was like that. Um, and those are the bits we know about best. You know, the, the faithful slave of Cicero who gets freed and, you know, and remains a friend of the old master. A very um, nostalgic, euphemising version of slavery, not entirely wrong in some cases. Um, and what, what didn't we look at? We didn't look at agricultural slaves, slaves in yeah. factories, slaves in the mines. We didn't yes, look who would be, be castrated sex, or, sex or blinded in yeah. an eye. Or, yeah. I mean, yes. hideous. There's, I'm gonna t you know this story, Tom, but I'm going to tell it for uh, your listeners. You know, there's the story of the Emperor Hadrian, um, who gets mad at a slave and blinds him in one eye and then feels um, uh, terribly remorseful and so says to the slave, uh, please let me recompense you, let me buy a present, you know, let me, and what would you like? And, and the slave says, my eye back, please. Mm. So Mary, let me ask you a question allied to that about slavery and violence. Um, the most famous, I mean, I know you've written about this, the most celebrated Roman monument probably in the world, the place that everybody goes to when they visit Rome, place where children line up to pose with swords and to dress in the yeah. costumes yeah i believe sam brook jr is in that is in that yeah. that that arena he's going there for this yes. for half term isn't yes. he is going there for <laughs> half term and we've got it penciled in um so the, the Colosseum, gladiators yeah this is part of that isn't it do, uh, do you think yeah. do you yeah. find if you are driving past do you find that distasteful and wrong um I don't warm to the idea of gladiatorial display. Um, I hope it tells us a little bit about ourselves, because when when Sambrook Jr. lines up and has his photograph taken with the dress-up gladiators, um, I hope, I, I'm sure you point out to him, Dominic, that he's investing in that kind of violence and culture. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly interrogating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> violent you know? practices in my episode. and and I I think that look, you know 
the Romans are horrible. And one of, one of the reasons we study them is because they are horrible. Mm. And, you know, they, they themselves wonder what they are doing, sitting down and, you know, it, supposedly enjoying the slaughter of human beings. You know, they're not, you know, we picture them as just a lustful crowd. And, you know, some of them are and some of them aren't. And some of them are, are both a lustful crowd and a questioning crowd about you know, what's going on. But I think that we have to reflect a little bit on why we so like yeah. that side. So yeah. we, we, we find distasteful, but we're so invested in well, that gladiator. side. I mean, gladiator, gladiator. gladiator has gladiator. its cake and eats it. Yes. And, you know, I suspect we have our cake and eat it and the Romans had their cake and eat it. I think that we also have to remember that it's there's been um, different versions of how we take that on board over the last few hundred years. Because, um, you know, if we were in the middle of the 19th century and visited Rome, uh, the Colosseum was then still a, basically a shrine to, dead, to martyred Christians. And, and it, it was totally overgrown, extremely romantic. It's still uh, a great big cross. The cross is still there, but nobody notices it. Um, and there was a little hermit in his hermitage, you know, in one side of the of the I mean, kind that's of the overgrown garden. hermitage in the world, isn't it? <laughs> you I mean, know, can you imagine absolutely. a classy hermitage? You know, and if you said Colosseum, then it's about the persecution of the Christians. And of course, you go back to the, the reason why, you know, why was the Colosseum built in the first place? Well, there's two reasons for that. One is it was built by the new dynasty under Vespasian to obliterate part of the extravagant palace that the Emperor Nero had golden built. Golden house. The it? golden house. And the Colosseum is built on the site of Nero's ornamental lake. And it was... It, it was a kind of quasi-democratic gesture. It was saying, this used to be the private pleasure grounds of a tyrant. And me, Vespasian, I am giving it back to public entertainment. It's, it's but like also, politicians also, becoming playing yeah, football, isn't it? I mean, that, it's... That, in a way, in a way. But, but, you know, just also remember the other, the other kind of awkward side. How did Vespasian get the money to build this? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, very expensive piece of work. He got it because of his, his and his son's put down of the Jewish rebellion just before he took power in uh, 69 and his destruction of the temple. Mary, so, just, just the thought about um, this kind of idea that perhaps we as, as a society generally perhaps don't engage with the, the brutality uh, that, that underpins so much of, I guess, particularly Roman civilization, And I wonder if it's to do with the fact that, that most of us study it when we're children. It's, it's a topic, it's, you know, it's the childhood of Europe, perhaps therefore yes. it's appropriate to it's, children. And, you know, the, the, the thing that I, I always have to struggle against is the influence of Asterix, in which Julius Caesar yes. conquers Gaul without killing a single person. <laughs> even and, though, you know, and in which the Gauls are total sweeties. Who well, never, they're all you know, sweeties, aren't you, they? You know, and in fact, you know, we wouldn't much like living in ancient Gaul. Uh, even no, if that, an indomitable village, it'd be terrible. Uh, no, it would be absolutely terrible. But I think there's, uh, there is that, that it is a kind of... Um, you know, it, there's, there's a certain infantilization that we have of the ancient world, you know, um, a, a projection of, you know, the nuclear family and we've got them all dressed up in their togas, you know, wife, faithful slave and husband and wife and two kids. But there's also, I think, a 
little bit of a sanctimonious self-righteousness about it. I mean, and I think that's the other side of our discussions of slavery, because you you take students around um, slave quarters that you can identify in some Roman houses or Hadrian's great palace at, at Tivoli outside Rome. And, you know, they are terrible, dank, dingy workhouses, really. Uh, and even with clever students, you can you can often say to them, would we do that now? And they, oh, no, 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 we wouldn't. You know, we don't have slaves. Well, it's convenient for us to imagine we don't have slaves. But, you know, think where your your smartphone's made. Yeah. And in what conditions. And, you know, so I, I think that our relationship of investment in the ancient world is always combined with a sense of certain kind of um, self-righteousness about uh, how much better we are. We are better. You know, I, I'm not going to take I'm not going to take a trip back to ancient Rome if you paid me a very, you know, you know, it's not kind of like... A, <laughs> not I'm even a, if you were going to be an empress. I, or maybe, especially no, not an empress, so you end up on an island get, or something. Yeah, I'm a celebrity, get me out of ancient Rome, you know. Um, Great show that would be. <laughs> um, but we have to see that there's there's a complexity here in our engagement. And uh, we we tend to think about these things in very binary terms. Well, Mary, this raises some really interesting questions about the future of classics, which is, of course, so... I mean, a lot of listeners won't know this, but in America, in academic circles, I mean, really, I think specifically in America, it is intensely controversial. So, for example, there's a an assistant professor at Princeton called Danielle Padilla-Peralta, who has written and spoken at length about basically dismantling classics yeah. as a subject because he believes that classics mm. is a kind of bulwark of white supremacy, mm. Eurocentrism, yeah. all of these yeah. terrible things. Yeah. What's your take on all that? Um well, I think I should say that, um, particularly in the case of Donnell, he's really smart and what he writes on Roman history is extremely good. Um, I think that it's, there's a, a baby and bathwater problem here and it, it does play out differently in, in the context of um, post-slavery America. It does play out differently. But I think that you know, anybody who studies classics and tries to deny that it has been used to legitimate some of the you know, most horrible political movements yeah. that we've got, you know, would just not be looking history in the face. I think what, what the, the most fervent of those um, um, criti critics of classics in the States tend to sometimes forget is that, first of all, there is another side to it, you know, as yeah. we've mentioned, you know, there's the revolutionary side, you know, go and look at revolutionary architecture. We think of, we think of architecture and classics as being, you know, Prince Charles liking columns, but, you know, look at Boulay and people like that in the French 18th and 19th century using classical forms to reconfigure the very nature of what architecture is. So, but I think also... Um, the, the people who use classics as a, a as a bullock for um, you know white supremacy, you name it, far right causes, usually they've got it terribly wrong. You know, right. yeah. <laughs> they're not they're very bad classicists. And uh, you know, I, I I think that possibly we could spend more of our time um, 
just patiently explaining why the Spartans, for example, are not entirely admirable and represent a, um, a, a good model for a modern state. And I think, too, that you know, we've talked a bit already about you know, where the study of classics ends. And there has been a very, not just Greco-Roman centeredness, it's been very centred on Italy and what is now modern Greece. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be done in saying, look, um, parts of the African continent uh, were, you know, crucially important parts of the Roman Empire. And classicists have sometimes themselves given the impression that it was a white man's subject. Now, it isn't and hasn't been for a long time. Um, but we ought to, I think we ought to shout a bit about that before we decide to burn it all down. And isn't there a danger as well that classics is just, is just endangered anyway? I mean, classics is always a bit embattled, isn't it? It's always, well, I think it's been embattled since about the 4th century AD, <laughs> probably, you know. I mean, there is something about classics which um, embedded in the subject is the idea that people before us did it better. Right, right? that's interesting. You know? Yeah. And so there's a, you know, a, a venerable classical organisation in this country, the Classical Association, founded in the, um, the early years of the 20th century. Why did they fight it? Because they thought that classics was going down the tubes. They wanted to have a society that would preserve classics. Now, we look back to the early years of the 20th century as a moment when you know, classics was, you know, you could see it everywhere. Their perception was people aren't doing it as well as they used yeah. to be. We need this, you know, the, there are people are always trying to put preservation orders on it. And partly, you know, partly I'm kind of pleased because I think, you know, although one way of representing classics is that it's an awfully self-confident elitist discipline, which kind of involves not much more than quoting bits of Homer at random, you know, it's also a, a discipline that as long as I've been involved and in for decades earlier has been concerned about itself, you know, wondered what it was for, um, how it should fit into a modern curriculum, etc., etc. You know, classicists are, you know, they're, they're quite sort of heart-searching. They're, they're, they're not... Well, Mary, there's, there's a question yeah. from Mark Woodhouse. If we stopped studying classics tomorrow, what would we lose? I mean, that's, I, a, that's a yeah, well, that's for you. I actually um, um, wrote an exam question uh, almost exactly like that about 20 years ago. If classics goes, what else goes? was my exam question. I don't think many people answered it, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think that we've already touched on that. You know, I, I'm not in any way um, an advocate of, you know, every 11-year-old being put through compulsory Latin you know, uh, for uh, you know, um, for whatever reason, you know, uh, I I am an advocate of people getting the opportunity to study Latin and that to be encouraged. But in a sense, I think we've we've already hinted at what would go. I mean, if you're going to read Dante, um, how do you read Dante if nobody? in your culture, and happily culture is a kind of sharing enterprise, so mm. we don't need absolutely everybody to have read Virgil, but how, how is Dante going to make sense to us without Virgil still being on our cultural horizon? You know, you look at the Cohen brothers, oh brother, where art thou? You know, which is based on the Odyssey. How, you know, is that kind of movie possible? Is that uh, without that sense that Homer is still um, part of our world? Um, I don't think that you 
You know, as I say, uh, classicists can sometimes come over a bit heavy and a bit strong. But you know, uh, my claim would be, and this is one of the reasons, of course, that I wrote the book, is that a visit to an art gallery, a major uh, Western art gallery, is actually impoverished if you don't know what the painters are painting. So to, <laughs> to turn that slightly on its head, um, so if classics went, if there was no opportunity to study ancient Greece and Rome, I, I reckon that um, there would still be people who would want to do it uh, desperately. And and one of the reasons for that is I, I remember um, an editor years ago when I was kind of debating what to, to write a subject. And he said that, um, you know, the top three topics that sell to the general public, obviously, Second World War comes in absolutely <laughs> miles ahead, then Tudors and then the Romans. Yeah. Uh, not yeah. the Greeks, not the Egyptians. Yeah. It was it was yeah. always yeah. but the Romans in particular uh, have that glamour. And I wonder that well, that a lot of the um the hesitancy uh, that kind of shadows uh, maybe the study of classics is in part a fear of that glamour that it's seen as a kind of uh, almost yeah. it's it's dangerous perhaps. It's mm. it's hard to control because it is alien to us. Yeah, no, that's that's why it's exciting, you know. But it's it's sheer alienness, while also the sense that it remains part of our world is what gives it. Which is know, what Gladiator gave, wasn't it? It I is mean, what Gladiator gave. gave. That gave. Sense of, this is a... But but I also think that um, there there is huge popular interest. Um, you know, you only have to look at what plays sell out in the West End. Now we can go back to the theatre, and you know the you know. Ancient Greek tragedy is still a blockbuster. It's still putting bums on seats. But what you've got to realise, I think, is that that why that popular um, enthusiasm can be sustained is because there are people doing some hard, possibly not very glamorous, academic work on those texts, which keep them um, on the intellectual um, and contemporary horizon. I mean, I think people often say to me, but we don't need people like you because everything's been translated. And I said, well, look, if you think, go back to Gilbert Murray's translations of Greek tragedy in the early 20th century, hugely popular. Um, they sold out. You look at Murray's translations of Greek tragedy now and you wouldn't you wouldn't have a run of more than a week if you tried to <laughs> yeah. if you tried to put it on, because actually what what Murray was doing is what we all do, which is mediating the ancient world to our own concerns, and of course making our own concerns seem different in the light of ancient concerns. But you sure can't do it with the rhyming couplets of Gilbert Murray in twenty twenty one, and so. You know, keep keep on supporting the doing of academic classics as well as Gladiator. You are, as ever, <laughs> the most eloquent defender of your of your discipline. Uh, it's been it's been wonderful to have you on. Um, but we have one last question, Tom. Uh, Dominic, Dominic, Do Dominic does. It's, it's Dominic here who is massively lowering know, the tone. Our uh, listeners okay. know that we like to end with the really big historiographical kind of the, what they call the meta questions. So we've had a question, an excellent question. Now, I know you've responded to this already, so I know your game. Um, it's from Carlos D. And I, this is the question I think that everybody wants to know the answer. Um, if Alexander the Great fought Julius Caesar, who would win? 
It's a brilliant question, isn't it? Um, all I can tell you... With their armies, do we think, or kind of man on yeah, man? Yeah, they've got to have armies. It's not yeah. man to man, right? I mean... Well, one thing I can tell you, I, you know, I'm, I'm not very good. You're so much better at military history than me, Dominic, and I'm sure that you could you could give a... a Dominic a, hates a, military a, history. A, a, <laughs> well, if he hates military history, God knows he loves it. Um, but uh, uh, what I would say is... Do you know it's really interesting because the Greeks and Romans thought that? Yeah, it's, who like, would, it's who, like Plutarch's lives, isn't it? Plutarch, you know, when Plutarch writes his lives to the great Greeks and the great Romans and he puts them into pairs, you know, he pairs Julius Caesar with Alexander the Great. So you've got a kind of double-headed yeah. biography. And part of the issue is, OK, so which of them would win, guys? You know, and so even, you think, well, which of them is it? <laughs> You're, top You're the professor of classics. We want to know. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's hanging. It's, it's, it's very hard because neither of them last very long, really. You know, so, so yeah. you know, if you were to say Augustus, you know, is it oh. is it uh, is it oh, Alexander the Great or Augustus? Then, then I would go for Augustus because he was kind of unbatterable. Um, I'm going to take uh, I'm going to take the Roman part and say they were Thank both you. absolutely horrific massacres of innocent human beings, but probably Julius Caesar has the edge. See, I, I don't want to. Um, it's it's foolish to disagree with the professor of classics, but, but I think Alexander would win because he had a track. I said this to Tom beforehand. He had a track record of fighting bigger against bigger odds. The big superpower of the day, Persia. Julius Caesar just fighting no. a load of Gauls. No, Mary, I was, Mary, I was. I, I agreed with you, but obviously this is a debate that will run and run and run. What do you, the listener, think? Let us know. Um, I think Alexander I, was a terrible drunk. That was his Achilles' heel. Well, you're so just listening to the Roman propaganda here, aren't you? <laughs> I think this is the perfect note on which to end. Mary, thanks so much, and thank, thank you, you everyone thank for listening. You. Thank you, uh, and we will see you again soon. Bye bye. Thanks very much. Bye bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Rest Is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs> <laughs>